Tonight, the wife Picard, the child makes waffles, and we remember the man who brought Ming the Merciless to life. All this and more on the sci-fi edition of Multiverse, tonight! Comic books, sci-fi, fantasy, and more. If you're looking for a roundup of geeky news, you're in the right place. This is Multiverse Tonight. And here's your host, Thomas Townley. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 66 of Multiverse Tonight. I'm, of course, your host, Thomas Townley. And, well, I have some sad news to start this episode. I've had a death in the family. Our dog, Fanny, uh, just passed away. Uh, you know, she stopped eating and drinking a few days ago. And then on Sunday night, on Sunday, she just passed away. You know, it hurts, but... I'll get over it. Uh, to quote George Carlin, you know, life is a series of dogs, and unquote. And uh, Fanny was a very good dog, and I know she's in she's you know better place right now. But uh, you know, other than that, uh, looking forward to Planet Comic Con in Kansas City uh, coming up next week. And I hope to get a few good interviews out of that. I will uh, be talking to Dayton Ward about his new book. And uh, hopefully, you know, have a lot of cosplay photos. But let's go ahead and go on to some Star Trek news. So, you've been watching Star Trek Picard, but you have concerns about the violence and the darkness and you know, especially the recent scenes in the episode Stardust City Rag, where we saw poor Icheb getting unwanted surgery, and Seven of Nine deciding to go all dirty Harry on the person who killed him. Uh, some fans have even taken their concerns to showrunner Michael Chabon on his Instagram. Now, his answer, quote, I am not unambivalent about the violence myself. The choice was not made lightly, though it was made collaboratively and therefore with a good deal of conversation and debate among the creators. And so I assure you that it is not there simply because we can, or because we are trying, as you somewhat uncharitably put it, to be in. My partners would all have their own reasons for its presence in the, in the story, as some of us had our own reasons for shying away from it. For me, it came down to this. There has always been violence and even torture in Star Trek. Sometimes the violence has been implicit, sometimes explicit, according to the dictates of censorship. The nature of the situation being depicted, the mistake of individual creators, or technical or and or budgetary limitations. And the reason that there has always been violence in Trek is that Trek is art. And there has always been violence, implicit, implicit and explicit, in art. It belongs there. It belongs in any narrative about human beings, even human beings of the future. Violence often is the narrative, its source, its engine. The question of whether it's too much or not 
is ultimately a matter of taste. Personally, I come out closer to the less is more end, but that is just me. In the end, I saw how little time and space we had to convey a sense of Seven's history post-Voyager, and the things that drive and haunt her. I decided with my partners that intensity was warranted. Seven lives outside the rationale confines of the Federation, because that is where she finds her sense of purpose. But life is hard. You know, but life is hard out there, but if it wasn't, people wouldn't need her help so badly. And she wouldn't have found such a compelling reason to carry on, in spite of her history of trauma. But I hear you, unquote. You know, in other words, what he's saying there is it, it was a necessary evil in order to tell the story. However, Mr. Chaban uh, wasn't finished. He also talked about the show's tone and how it reflects our current reality. Quote, First of all, I think that the phrase, or a version of it, Star Trek, has always reflected its time, is open to multiple, potentially conflicting interpretations. It can mean individual Star Trek series have always consciously reflected thematically many of the most pressing issues of the time when they were made, I think that's the sense intended by people involved with making the two current series, and it's pretty obviously true. Starting with persistent themes of nuclear annihilation, racial, pre racial prejudice, mechanization, totalitarianism versus liberal democracy on the original series, through Deep Space Nine, with its themes of individual versus group identity, chosen family, reason versus faith, and the inevitable moral compromises of war. That's only the conscious way in which Trek has reflected the times in which it was made. But the phrase could also be taken the way I think you take it. That the world, the milieu depicted by Star Trek, the characters and their interactions, their capabilities and limitations as individuals, the social institutions and mores and techno technologies and ec economics and culture, reflects the world and era in which it was made. I think you're saying that this is wrong. And here's exactly where Trek doesn't, hasn't, and shouldn't reflect the world and times. That has always presented its crew, Starfleet, and the Federation as improvements, as realizations on our best potential, as aspirational. If Trek has reflected our world, it's, a ki it's in a kind of utopian funhouse mirror where everything looks better. I would say that by and large that has been true, though possibly not as to the degree that many Trek fans claim or feel. But there's another side to the world, the people and society, depicted in Star Trek, which is all the characters, planets, cultures, mores, and interactions that takes place outside of Starfleet, the Federation. Many of these outside cultures and characters, the empires and alliances and unions, have deliberately reflected aspects of our world, with all its imperfection, intolerance, brutality, its humiliations and injustices, its evils. I don't mean just in a thematic sense, but in the behavior of individual non-Federation, non-Starfleet characters, in the construction of societies around prejudices and inequalities, violence, lust for power, etc. That brings us to Picard. In the one long ten-part story we're telling, we're asking two questions about the greater world of Star Trek, i.e. the Federation and everything outside the Federation. One, a venerable Star Trek question with a long pedigree in previous series and films. What happens when the Federation, 
the Roddenberry Federation, with all its enlightened and noble intentions, free from want, disease, internal war, greed, capitalism, intolerance, etc., is tested by forces inimical to its values. What happens when two of its essential principles, security and liberty, say, come into conflict? The answer has to be, at first, it buckles, it wobbles, it may, to some extent, compromise or even betray its values, or at the very least, be sorely tempted to do so. If not, there's no point asking the question, though it's a question that any society with aspirations like ours or the Federation's need to ask. If nothing can ever truly test the Federation, if nothing can rock its perfection, then it's just a magical land. It's Lothlorien. It's in its enchanted bubble, untouchable by the shadow, and also profoundly inhuman. To me, it's the humanity of the Federation, which means, among many admirable things, its imperfection, its vulnerability, and the constant need to defend it from our own worst natures that makes it truly inspiring. The other related question we're asking is, what about the people who live outside, at the edges, or even within the Federation, but who, for various reasons, aren't quite of it? Ex-Starfleet officers, refugees, people like Seven who served on a Starfleet ship but was never actually in Starfleet. People who have fallen through the cracks or fallen victim to their own weaknesses. What is life like for people who, for whatever reason, live beyond the benevolent boundaries of the Federation where, for example, post-scarcity is a dream and there is a monetary economy. Again, there is precedent for this kind of story on Trek. But the fact that our story only re resolves over 10 episodes, not one or two or four, out of a season of 23, might make it feel, sometimes, that there is more darkness, more trauma in our characters' lives, more struggle. This show unquestionably has darker tonalities than some others. DS9 is the standout exception. It lives more in the shadows, where the Federation's light can't always reach. That isn't to condemn, criticize, undo, break, or, God knows, betray the Federation or Gene Roddenberry's vision. Shadow defines light. Every new Star, Star Trek series since TNG has sought to escape what can feel like the confines of previous series, not simply of canon, which can also be a strangely liberating force but of the kinds of stories about the kinds of characters and societies that have already been told. Each new series has expressed its impulse to light out for the territories in a different way. TNG went a century into the future of TOS. DS9 went onto a station full of aliens that was be both beyond the edge of the Federation and next to a wormhole that led to the Gamma Quadrant. Voyager put 70k light years between it and its predecessors and introduced a raft of new species and worlds. Enterprise went deep into the early past of the Federation. Next season's discovery goes into Trek, the Trek universe's far future. The space we found for Trek is not Dark Federation. It's one of people who live and work at or beyond the margins of the Federation who travel beyond its boundaries to find the truth." Unquote. That was a long, that, that was that was a lot of words. Um, well, I can definitely say he's a writer. You know, that, that is a lot of words. And I think there's a lot of, of truth 
in what he's saying there. I think he's 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 kind of laid it out, you know. Basically, the the if you think of the original series, the next generation has kind of you know this is what's happening within the boundaries of the Federation. Yes, they're enlightened. Yes, you know, there's no money economy. Uh, you know, that's great. But you know, he's talking about you know what 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 does the world outside the boundaries of the Federation look like? You know, you know, light tends to you know, light and darkness tend to define each other. So I think there's a there's a lot of uh, good in what he's in what he's saying. Now uh, he also had more to say on Twitter when asked if there was a connection between the state of the Federation in Picard and the state of the Federation in the 32nd century that Discovery Season 3 will take place in. Mr. Chaban replied, quote, Federation downfall? What Federation downfall? The Federation is still very much alive and well and home to trillions, quadrillions of safe, housed, fed, educated citizens with the potential to lead full, fulfilling lives. There was a crisis 15 years ago in the wake of the costly Dominion War and the Romulan Emergency, which had a negative impact on the lives of many people, including most of our principal characters, in one way or another, during which Starfleet, and by extension, the Federation did not acquit itself well, in Picard's eyes. From Admiral Clancy's viewpoint, which is likely the mainstream view, Picard's attitude was unrealistic, quixotic, and even dangerous. She may be right. They may both be right and both wrong. But that was 15 years ago, and the Federation is still going strong. Perhaps in the eyes of some, it lost its luster, its air of invulnerability, its claim to the moral high ground, a process that began during DS9 times that is hardly a downfall, though, unquote. As to another fan's question as to why Picard doesn't make reference to the Dominion War in the show, Michael Chabon answered that he had planned to originally but was convinced not by colleagues that doing so might confuse newer fans. Bad move, Chabon, uh, for this one. Fans will know about it. New fans will want to go back and watch Deep Space Nine to find out about it, or they'll, you know, go and read about it on the internet. You know, it's all right to have continuity that not everyone has seen. You know, people are adaptable. You're you're kind of telling us we're not that we're not smart enough to do our homework, which is again a really bad move. You know, trust your audience. You know, trust that trust that we're going to if we're really interested, go out and say Dominion War. What Dominion War? Click 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 click. Oh, that Dominion War. See. Anyway. Robert Picardo says that he's in talks to appear in season two of Picard. He could, he could either appear as the EMH creator, Louis Zimmerman, and EMH, or the Doctor. He's quoted as saying, I am pleased that they, CBS, have expressed interest in me. They have reached out to my agent about next season, so I'm looking forward to seeing what it is. As you know, I play two characters, primarily the Doctor, but also Louis Zimmerman. Louis Zimmerman, the engineer who created the Doctor's program, certainly would have aged. 
He's in the same timeline as Patrick Stewart and all these Star Trek The Next Generation folk. The Doctor, of course, like Data, doesn't age, but there are ways to address that, as we all know. I joked the other day that my daughter does visual effects. That's exactly what she does is digitally correct actors. So I said, if they hire the two of us, she could make me look 25 years younger. Anyway, it will, it, it will be interesting to see when something happens. If something, but, uh, but I might have a chance to be on screen with Jerry again. It would be an honor and a delight, obviously, to have scenes with Patrick. So, you know, we'll keep our fingers crossed. You know, I think, I unquote, I think that would be a very cool idea. It, it'd be nice to see the Doctor again, even if it was like a short cameo. Or maybe, you know, in, in season two, they have to go save Louis Zimmerman because, because the events of season one have gotten out of hand. Star Trek Voyager is turning 25. So far, we've seen Jerry Ryan return as Seven of Nine on Picard. And the group is getting a monument erected in Captain Janeway's hometown of Bloomington, Illinois. Now, 455 Films is producing a documentary about the series. 455 Films had previously done the Star Trek documentaries The Captains, Chaos on the Bridge, and For the Love of Spock. Studio President David Zabone hinted about what was coming on Twitter saying, quote, Okay, who likes Star Trek Voyager and thinks it deserves to have a documentary to commemorate its 25th anniversary? Unquote. He also confirmed that they will be filming during Star Trek The Cruise 4, filming testimonials from Voyager fans. The cruise this year has a Voyager theme, and guests on the cruise include Kate Mulgrew, Jerry Ryan, Robert Picardo, Roxanne Dawson, Ethan Phillips, Tim Russ, and Garrett Wang. No word on when the documentary will be out, but I'm gonna guess the fall. So, have you ever been watching the classic uh, original series episode, The Trouble with Tribbles? and wondered how long would it take to fill up the ship with those cooing balls of fur? Yeah. We have a little tribble, tribbles here. No? Well, someone has to uh, answer that question. So a group of undergrads at the University of Leicester at the UK, at, in the UK calculated that the growth rate of the Tribbles and published a paper on it. It was a relatively simple calculation involving an exponential formula. Spock himself gave the initial set of variables in the episode estimates that each Tribble, born pregnant, can give birth to 10 or more Tribbles in 12 hours, and puts the number of Tribbles on board in ju after just three days at 1,777,561. The students, assuming that Spock's assessment was correct and presuming that no Tribbles died, they came to the estimate that it would take 18.4 to the 10th to the 9th power and also estimated that it would take 18.4 to uh, times 109 Tribbles to entirely fill the Enterprise. That's 18,400,000,000 Tribbles. So under these conditions, they came to the conclusion that it would take 4.5 days for Tribbles to completely fill the ship. That's a lot of Tribbles. Of course, in the episode, the Tribbles had been poisoned to death by a contaminated quadro 
In that case, the authors proposed a further paper saying, quote, a further calculation, including a death term, could be done to find out how long it would take for the populations to become extinct if there was an unlimited supply of toxic grain, unquote. You know, I love science. Now, some sad news. Star Trek Discovery actor Kenneth Mitchell, who has played three different Klingons in Discovery's first two seasons, Cole, Cole Shaw, and, T and Tenovic, has revealed that he has been diagnosed with ALS, a.k.a. Lou Gehrig's disease. He was originally diagnosed back in 2018. A few months ago, in October, he was forced to use a wheelchair. In an interview with People Magazine, he said, quote, the moment they, that they told me, told us it was ALS, it was like I was in my own movie. That's what it felt like. Like I was watching the scene where someone is being told that they have a terminal illness. It was just a complete disbelief, a shock. I'll never forget one of my Star Trek co-stars told me because they had dealt with some trying times with illness and stuff. And I remember them communicating, communicating to me saying, you have a choice. You can look at this in many different ways, but maybe try to look at this like a gift where you get to experience life in a way that most people don't, unquote. However, he's not going to try to be down about it. He told people that he and others are looking into new roles with his diagnosis in mind. Well, yeah, at least he's, he's, he's looking on the bright side of life. You know, always look on the bright side of life. Let's go to Star Wars news. Well, we start uh, Star Wars news with, uh, are you going to be in Las Vegas anytime soon? If you are, hop on down to Immersion Vegas at the Fashion Show Mall to see Fans Strike Back, a 10,000 square foot exhibition showcasing superfan Daniel Prada's 1,000 square foot uh, Daniel Prada's collection that includes more than 600 collectibles, figurines, costumes, models, and lightsabers. The exhibit will also showcase a 16-foot a Jabba the Hutt and a recreation of an Imperial I-Class Star Destroyer main bridge. Now, there's no opening date yet for it, but tickets will be priced at $29 plus taxes and fees for adults and $15 plus for kids 11 and younger. I'll have a link to it in our show notes. Chewbacca actor Juana Su Suatamo has a new baby daughter. Juanas and his wife Mila Pujasvara welcomed their second child on Friday the 28th. The man who took over the role of Chewie during the final movie in the sequel trilogy posted an announcement on Instagram with a caption of a daughter, a photo of his daughter saying, quote, we have some exciting news. We were blessed to welcome the newest member of our family. Our little princess, or senator, or general, or whatever she wants to be, was born this week and is doing great, unquote. He went on to thank the hospital staff and ended it with, quote, Welcome to the world, Princess Baca, unquote. He would later clarify that she has not been named yet and that Baca is just a nickname. When her and her old and her brother are older, maybe they should go trick or treating as the Chewie family, or show up at Star Wars Celebration in costume, or film an all new Star Wars holiday special. 
Yeah. Although you know Disney Plus would think about that. Let's not. Anyway, one of the complaints about the rise of Skywalker was the feel of missing scenes. By the way, as an old-timer, as, as someone who's been around the block, the one thing I can tell you is that if you want different takes of scenes or missing scenes, check out the novelization or the comic book adaptation. And sure enough, the novelization for The Rise of Skywalker has something that was missing when Ben Solo passed away, his last words. According to the book, it goes like this, quote, A voice came to her through the force, clear and strong. I will always be with you, Ben said. She smiled. Let the truth of it wash over her. No one's ever really gone, she whispered. Unquote. By the way, if you're wondering if Ben's force ghost shows up in the book, nope. It's been confirmed that there's not a ghost of a chance of that. The novelization of Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker comes out on March 17th. The comic book adaption, which sounds like it will have some added material as well, will come out this summer, in June. And the movie comes out on digital on that date, and the disc versions hit shelves on March 31st. The Mandalorian will be premiering on Pro Saban in, in Germany on March 22nd, prior to the launch of Disney Plus on March 24th. The first episode will air as part of a Star Wars night on the broadcaster that ends with the German free television premiere of The Last Jedi. However, there is bad news for Amazon Fire users in Germany, as according to German tech news site Heiss Online, Disney re recently removed the Amazon Media Player from its supported device list. If that changes before launch, I'll let you know. The Mandalorian's visual production supervisor for ILM, visual effects Ian Milham, gave some behind-the-scenes explanations of how some of the scenes were brought to life. On Twitter, he wrote, quote, For space fights, we populate the scenes with lasers and explosions in different quadrants and distances, hook them up to custom buttons on the iPad, and let the director go to town. Like playing X-Wing versus TIE Fighter on a 70-foot screen. Season 2 of The Mandalorian comes out in October. By the way, there is now an official The Child Waffle Maker. Although, since it prints the child and the Mandalorian logo on it, it kind of resembles more of a pancake than a waffle. You know, a relatively flat waffle is always a pancake. If Now, if you want one, or want to see what it looks like, uh, they cost about $40 and can be ordered from GameStop. GameStop, it's still a thing. Lucasfilm is preparing to launch new adventures in an old point in Star Wars history. Star Wars The High Republic takes place at the Galactic Republic and Jedi Order's high point some 200 years before the events of The Phantom Menace. Since this unexplored section of, of the galaxy of galactic history is untapped, the creators have free reign to make what they want. New adventures, new characters, and of course new merchandising. In a statement, Lucasfilm Publishing creative director Michael Siglian about this new venture said quote star wars the high republic features the jedi as we've always wanted to see them as true guardians of peace and justice this is a hopeful optimistic time 
when the Jedi and the Galactic Republic are at their height. Of course, into this glorious new era, something wicked this way comes. This initiative will give readers, young and old, a new corner of the galaxy to explore through rich, meaningful stories. Plus, readers will learn what scares the Jedi. Unquote. I don't know. What do you think scares the Jedi? Uh, lack of money? Uh, raid? I don't know. Anyway, the first book, books in the comics, are set to debut at Star Wars Celebration Anaheim in August, with Star Wars The High Republic, Light of the Jedi, being a massive interconnected story that's told across various formats by various publishers including Star Wars The High Republic Into the Dark by Claudia Gray, Star Wars The High Republic A Test of Courage by Justina Ireland, Star Wars The High Republic Adventures by Janel Jose Older, which is an IDW uh, comic book series, Star Wars The High Republic Adventures by Daniel Jose Older. Oh, didn't I just say that? Anyway, Star Wars The High Republic by Kevin Scott, which is, will be a Marvel comic book series, and Star Wars The High Republic Light of the Jedi by Charles Sully, which is an, an adult novel. Yeah. Well, I guess that's more, more stuff for uh, people to, you know, keep their, keep their minds on Star Wars while they decide what's next for the movie franchise. Now... Let's go on to geek news. Sci-Fi has announced that The Magicians will be ending this April. The show's fifth season will be its last. The show, based on the series of novels of the same name, premiered back on Sci-Fi in January of 2016 and has been one of the most consistent shows Sci-Fi has had on schedule. In a statement, the channel said, quote, The Magicians has been a part of our sci-fi family for five fantastic seasons. As we near the end of this journey, we want to thank John McNamara, Sarah Gamble, Henry Lonzo Myers, Lev Grossman, and our entire brilliant cast, crew, and writers and directors for their beautiful creation. But most of all, we thank the fans for their tremendous support and passion. Because of you, magic will be in our hearts forever. Now, sci-fi is definitely on a streak. They've also canceled the third annual Leprechaun St. Patrick's Day Marathon. The past couple of years, the network has aired all the Leprechaun movies back to back. This year, it will be it will just show Leprechaun's Revenge and Leprechaun Returns. Well, I guess you can always stream the rest of them. That, yeah, it's kind of being a spoil sport. James Blum would love to build himself a Frankenstein movie. Talking with the Evolution of Horror podcast, the producer said, quote, I'd love to do Frankenstein. I've, taste, I've tasked our filmmakers with trying to figure out just straight Frankenstein. Again, I don't know if someone else is doing it. I don't know anything about it, but I would love to try. And I'm waiting for the great idea. The Invisible Man, I agree. The best ideas feel like, my gosh, it's, it's so obvious. Why didn't that happen before? If you could come up with something as good for Frankenstein, I'd love to try that. Unquote. So, does, does, does anyone out there want to see Jason Blum's Frankenstein? Anyone? Anyone? If you do, yeah. let me know in, in, the, in the comments. Anyway, 
Uh, Octavia E. Butler's novel Dawn will be made into a TV series for Amazon. The drama has been given a directed series order and will be written and directed by Victoria Mahoney, who is the second unit director on The Rise of Skywalker. She will team up with Ava DuVernay, the director of Disney's big budget A Wrinkle in Time adaptation. The novel was published in 1907 and follows around an African-American woman who works with aliens to resurrect the human race some 250 years after nuclear war. There is no word on when it will be produced or aired. The tenth season of American Horror Story will have Macaulay Culkin joining the cast for the new story. Ryan Murphy shared the news of the casting with an Instagram video of what resembled the opening credits to the tune of Oral Peck's Dead of Night. Season 10 will premiere in the fall of 2020. Stranger Things, Finn Wolfhard, is set to star in the thriller movie Rules for Werewolves, based on a short film of the same name that also starred Finn. The film will be based on writer Kirk Lynn's debut novel, which he also adapted for the screen. Deadline reports that the film, quote, investigates the rituals and rhythms of a pack of wild teens as they break in and loot a new home, leaving someone or something behind for the cops to find, unquote. It's also being reported that the movie will be done in one single take, mostly. Well, we're going to have to wait to find out about the new shows coming out in the fall of 2020. Due to fears about the spreading COVID-19 coronavirus, a lot of upfronts have either been canceled or postponed. Also, the new James Bond film, No Time to Die, has been pushed back from April to November, and Peter Rabbit 2 has been pushed from April to August. Now, I'm guessing we'll learn about about uh, the new shows one way or the other, probably in print, but yeah, it'll be, it, you know, this, this COVID-19, you know, yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. Now, some sad news. Actor Max von Sydow has passed away. The man, born Carl Adolf von Sydow, was born on April 10, 1929, in Lund, Sweden. He grew up to star in more than 100 films and TV shows, including 11 films by famed director Ingmar Bergman, including The Seventh Seal, which saw him playing a, a chess game with death. Modern movie fans might know him better as Father Lancaster Murren from The Exorcist and The Exorcist 2, Ming the Merciless from Flash Gordon, King Osric in Conan the Barbarian, Dr. Keynes in Dune, the voice of Vigo the Carpathian in Ghostbusters 2, Judge Fargo in Judge Dredd, director Lamar Burgess in Minority Report, and Lore Santeca in Star Wars The Force Awakens, and many, many more roles. He was married twice and has two sons. Max von Sydow died on March 8th at the age of 90. And that brings us to the end of another sci-fi edition of Multiverse Tonight. Now, uh, if you'd like to check us out on our social media, we're at Twitter, at Multiverse Tom. We're also on Facebook and Instagram as Multiverse Tonight as well. And if you'd like to uh, contribute to uh, our show, please visit mtpodcast.com to go to our coffee, Patreon, and now glow.fm as well. 
And be sure to visit multiversetonight.com and check out the affiliate marketplace links, the link to our Tee Public store, our show notes, and so much more. Now, if you're a subscriber, be sure to share us with your friends. And if you're brand new to the show, please be sure to subscribe and leave us with some feedback and let us know how we're doing. Special thanks to Shane Ivers for our intro music and Lobo Loco for our outro music theme. Thanks for watching the sci-fi edition of Multiverse Tonight. We'll be back in just a couple of days with the comic book, book edition. Now, please, exit the universe in an orderly fashion. Good night. Multiverse Tonight is a production of half Big Genre Productions. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved.